Good evening. Uh, I'm Mike Weinblatt from Boston. I'm at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And it's my pleasure tonight to uh, moderate a session uh, on methotrexate as part of uh, this month's uh, ongoing session on rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm delighted to have uh, a number of my colleagues uh, uh, on the panel. And hopefully during the next hour, we will be able to address some key issues regarding methotrexate and rheumatoid arthritis. And we welcome your questions from the audience, since that always makes it fun. I think we'll have a variety of opinions from the panelists, and we welcome your opinions uh, regarding uh, this cornerstone therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. So I'm going to ask each of my colleagues to introduce themselves uh, briefly, and we'll start with Dr. Wright from New York. Grace? Hi, so it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm Grace Wright, a rheumatologist in New York City. Um, I've been in practice for uh, 20 to 30 years, I'll just say on roughly, um, and, and pleasure to be here. And uh, Dr. Kremer, who's known well known to all of you from uh, New York and the South and Florida, Joel. Good evening, Michael and participants. Uh, spent a lot of time working, publishing on methotrexate, uh, no longer seeing patients, but still active with the Corona Research Foundation publishing. Pleasure to be here. And uh, Dr. Conway, Richard. Hi, I'm Richard Conway. I'm a rheumatologist in Dublin, Ireland, and delighted to be here uh, with these pillars of uh, metatrexate research. So it's probably about two o'clock in the morning in, in Dublin. Is that about right? Only midnight. Only midnight. Great. He's ready to roll then. Um, and as no, I'm Mike Weinblatt from the Brigham, and Joel and I have worked together for close to 40 years now on methotrexate issues and rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, I will upfront say, and I welcome my panelists' comments, that in 10 years from now, methotrexate is still going to be the, the drug that we talk about as the initial therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. So we're going to have uh, a number of uh, uh bullet points that we're going to review. And uh, Dr. Kush, if you want to bring up the um, slides, can we do that? Okay, so this is, you know, part of the hard decisions in RA uh, monthly course, and we're going to talk about methotrexate. And uh, Jack informed us that this is the largest response of any of the surveys done so far this month, and this has only been in 24 hours. So we've had 64 countries, rheumatologists respond, 45% from the United States with over 400 respondents. So here was the first question. What folate dosing do you use with methotrexate? And you were offered a milligram, five to 10 milligrams once weekly, leucovorum post-methotrexate or no folate. And we see in the United States that over 97% of the rheumatologists use a milligram per day and uh, worldwide about 50% use a milligram per day. Just so that everybody knows uh, in many parts of Europe, it's only, there, it's only available as a five milligram tablet. So it could be given five to 10 milligrams once weekly, um, a milligram a day, there was a smattering of leucovorin, and fortunately, very few patients, very few rheumatologists don't use folic acid. 
So I'm going to ask Dr. Conway, Rich, in Ireland, what are, what are you dosing are you using? So yeah, as you said, we on prescription, we only have the five milligram dosing. Um, so financially, um, that's the, the best option for patients. So we use five milligram tablets. Most of us probably use it once a week. Some people use it more often, three times a week, six times a week. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty much on the five milligram tablets. And uh, Joel, you know, I know this has been Chella Alicant and and Sarah Morgan studied a lot of different dosing regimens with folic acid. I mean, what what's your take home message about how much folic acid can you use? Well, the bottom line is it's never been formally studied. Um, Sarah Morgan's studies showed that a very strong inverse correlation between RBC folate and all toxicities. So you have to give enough folate to avoid toxicity. So how much is that? So it differs in different people. Depends on diet. Uh, I would not give it once a week because um, the ongoing biochemical and cellular effects of methotrexate are occurring on an ongoing basis, 24-7. And I don't know about the timing of a once-weekly dosage uh, what's the timing with the methotrexate dose? Uh, is it like leucovorin where you have to rescue 24 hours after? Uh, I just feel more secure doing it the way they do in the U.S., a milligram daily. But the other variations, to my knowledge, have not been studied. So our Australian colleagues have written previously that, you know, folic acid, could blunt the efficacy of the drug. And that certainly was not shown in these earlier trials done by Dr. Alarcon and Dr. Morgan. Um, you know, in the US, I use one to three milligrams a day. I'm a big proponent of leucovorin in patients who have side effects despite folic acid, um, because that can allow patients to stay on the drug. Leucovorin, which is folinic acid, which is the active metabolite, so to speak, because folic acid's a pro, a pro molecule. Um, the keys about leucovorin is it has to be given outside of eight hours of giving your methotrexate. If you administer leucovorin within the first eight hours after methotrexate administration, it may blunt the efficacy of the drug. And we've previously reported this. And Tony Russell in Canada did a trial in which he gave leucovorin 48 hours after methotrexate and it did not block the, the uh, toxicity. So your window is somewhere between eight and 48 hours with leucovorin. Generally, I tell patients to take it 10 to 12 hours after their methotrexate. It's particularly good in blocking alopecia, oral ulcers, uh, diarrhea, and preserving the bone marrow. It's moderate in its efficacy on nausea, because I don't think we have any great regimen for nausea. And I'd say it's moderate on its effects on blocking fatigue. It has no impact upon lung toxicity. And even though Joel has reported about leucovorin and liver disease, it's not ever been shown that it actually reduces the risk of liver disease. And Grace, your regimens, what do you do in practice? Yeah, so I am a one to two milligrams a day for most of my patients. I would say the majority are on one milligram. Um, and every once in a while, I'll have somebody who needs leucovorin. 
um, because of the usually severe oral ulcers in which they can't even drink water. But you know, there's this other prevailing strategy where people will do six days of folic acid and skip the methotrexate day. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I give it every day because I'm not sure, at least the dose that we use, that holding it the day of methotrexate impacts efficacy at all. And when yeah, Doc, the, when, when Chella Alicon did her study, she dosed every day. So that's what yeah, I do. They, so, they frequently skip the day of the methotrexate dose in Europe. That's my understanding. The thing is with folic acid, it will not interfere with the uptake of methotrexate at the reduced folate carrier. Folate, dihydrofolic acid, is taken up into the cell through a completely different uptake mechanism. So there's like a front door and a back door. So there's therefore no reason to hold folate on the day you give methotrexate. It's completely arbitrary and not consistent with the biochemical cell cellular effects of folate versus methotrexate. No, I agree. And I, I find that people who are skipping a day here and there tend to then forget their regimen. Yeah. So I really yeah, like make it a regular every day. Thing. Yeah, keep it consistent. So I think from a practical standpoint, and we've got a couple of, a couple of our colleagues around the world have now responded, um, you give enough medicine to get rid of the side effect. And if a milligram of folate doesn't do it, increase the dose to two milligrams in Europe uh, or in Canada where five milligrams paid for by prescription and one milligram isn't, you give five milligrams. And if that's not working, you go up to 10, I guess. And then if look, if you're still having the side effect before you abandon the drug, if you can get leucovorin, then you should give leucovorin. And we use the same strategy as oncology. We're kind of rescuing the side effect but don't give it within eight hours of the drug. And whenever my patients come in to see me, I go through their regimen of methotrexate dosing and ask them, when are you taking your leucovorin? And if, if they start to tell you they're starting to flare, it's possible they're flaring because they're taking their leucovorin within that eight hours. So can we go to the next slide, Jack? So what is the maximum methotrexate dose you use before you add or move on to another treatment. And here there's no difference. The majority of rheumatologists around the world want to get the dose up to 25 milligrams per week. We'll come back to how to give that in a minute. Uh, a third go to 20, uh, 15 milligrams was in about 6% that may be our friends, our colleagues in Asia and then the maximum tolerated dose. Um, a couple comments, and there's not a lot of this. Dose ranging studies above 25 milligrams per week, there are only one or two, showed that 35 milligrams weekly was no better than 25. So I personally don't go above 25 in RA. And then if you're gonna use the drug orally, and uh, Joel has commented and others have, if you're gonna use the drug orally, when you increase the dose above 15 or 17 and a half milligrams per week, you should either switch to sub-Q administration or do to split dose oral and it, uh, because that'll increase the bioavailability of the oral drug. Uh, Dr. Conway, Richard, in Ireland, what are you doing when you're increasing the dose? Are you going to split dose oral sub-Q or well, what, is, what is your strategy? I, I love sub-Q. So yeah, once I go beyond 15, I'll very often go to sub-Q um, and try and max it out at 25. The, the split daily dosing with a lot of our population, it doesn't, um, 
doesn't seem to work very well. They, they forget to take half of it and then uh, don't get the response that they, yeah. they want. Yeah, split weekly, not split daily. Because yes, if it's split, split, split daily, you'll be visiting the malpractice courts in the U.S. Um, Joel, Joel, tell us a little about your strategy here. Well, uh, like Richard, I prefer sub-Q. Uh, we showed, and uh, Jurgen Braun showed, that bioavailability drops off substantially orally after 15 milligrams. So <clears throat> you could be giving 20 milligrams orally and the patient seeing 15.4 milligrams, the equivalent. So either give it sub-Q. I've had some success uh, legitimately with splitting the dose over a 24-hour period. So let's say you're on uh, eight pills. So you make take three, two, and two. Oh, that's seven. Three, three, and two over a 24-hour period. Um, so you'll absorb the maximum dose of 7.5 milligrams when you split it. And a lot of people are needle phobic. So splitting it makes sense. It's either or. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Whatever Grace, works for patient. Grace, yeah, how about, I, what, what are you doing? So routinely at 15, I switch to sub-Q. There are a couple of folks who at 10 milligrams are having side effects and I may do sub-Q at 10. Um, and there are just a few needle phobics that I will do split dosing, but very few end up on that regimen. Yeah, so I'm actually the outlier. When we did our first trials with methotrexate in 1982, 1983, we used the pulse split dose methotrexate regimen that was advocated by the dermatologist, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., 8 a.m. And then, and that was actually how the drug was approved by the FDA on that split dose pulse. Then we went to once a week dosing. I'm now back to two doses, one day a week, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., when I go above 15 milligrams per week. Sub-Q is very effective, but as many of you know, you know, there's been this intermittent shortage of sub-Q methotrexate in the U.S. Um, and, you know, a lot, you know, I do go through with the patient when they come back to go through how they're taking their drug to make sure they're taking it only one day a week. I want to caution the audience because this, you know, there are some rheumatologists still today that talk about split dose over the course of a week. That should not be done. A Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Friday regimen was studied at the NIH in the 1960s in psoriasis. It was associated with more GI toxicity, more bone marrow toxicity, and more liver toxicity. So if you're going to split the dose, it ought to be given either split dose morning and night, one day a week, or the pulse cycle regimen that Joel mentioned, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., 8 a.m., one day a week. But don't split it over the course of a week. Um, and I'm delighted that the rheumatologists that responded to the panel are waiting to get to 20 to 25 milligrams per week before they add another drug. Jim O'Dell reported about six years ago in a study looking at insurance database in which only like 20% of patients who were starting a biologic we're on a methotrexate dose above 15 milligrams per week, which is really subtherapeutic. So to be cost effective and to help the patient get the dose up to 20 to 25 milligrams per week before you add another therapy. And I don't know if anybody on the panel would disagree with that or have other comments. No, I completely agree with you, Michael. Uh, it's important to know if you're giving, and I know good docs who've done this, 
you give them at the trick, say, as you said, say Monday, Thursday, rapidly dividing cells entering S phase, oral mucosa, gut, bone marrow, will be uh, rendered toxic if you give the methotrexate that way. There's a reason why we give it once a week. And it's, it's the difference in the replication rate of rapidly dividing cells. So you get yourself in big trouble if you give it more than a 24 hour period once a week. So Jack asked the question, um, and I'll start with, um, uh, what about stopping background methotrexate when changing or adding a biologic versus always continuing the methotrexate? Richard, what, what, what do you do? Unless there are side effects, I'll continue it for yeah. both efficacy reasons. And you confuse yourself because if the methotrexate is partially working, you take it away, it'll get worse and you won't know if the biologic is working. Yeah. Grace? Yeah. So, I mean, I, for me, this is a side effect issue. You know, I'm a, an adder and then I'll pull back if once I get into remission or to a sufficient uh, level of low disease activity, and then perhaps try to pull back on the methotrexate if that is a point of side effects, yeah. which typically you know, the women worry about their hair as well. Men worry yeah. about their hair, but they start to little things like that. They'll just, they'll just quit on it as well. Yeah. So I just want to caution the, the group. I mean, the audience again, there's a reason why we kept people on methotrexate when we added biologics. In the case of TNF-alpha blockers and abatacid and rituximab, methotrexate increases the efficacy of those drugs, and it does it by reducing antibody production to the monoclonal antibodies. Um, and if you stop methotrexate and then start them on, say, a TNF-alpha blocker like adalidomat, a significant percentage of those patients over time will lose efficacy because of blocking antibodies. And with, with the IL-6 blockers and with the Janus kinase inhibitors, even though there's not a statistical difference, there is still a numeric in, increased efficacy numerically with methotrexate as a background. So if you have someone who's tolerating methotrexate, then my God, keep them on methotrexate, add the biologic or add the JAK inhibitor. And then if they're doing great, you can start to dial back the methotrexate over time. Um, it looks like 10 milligrams per week, at least with adalidomat, is the lowest dose you can go to with and still maintain an ability to block antibodies against the monoclonal. Um, if you're having side effects, that's a different issue. But I think a lot of patients who are losing effect with the biologics are doing so because they're getting off their methotrexate. Joel, your thoughts? Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. Let's continue it. It's worth uh, considering tuscalizumab for about 30 seconds. IL-6 inhibition is indeed associated with uh, transaminitis. So you may likely see a greater incidence of new transaminase elevations when you add tuscalizumab to methotrexate. However, you can adjust the dose of the methotrexate to keep the uh, transaminases within the normal range. But uh, that particular combination is worth being, uh, being vigilant about. Yeah, and the other thing I want to talk about tozolizumab, because most people have forgotten this, that there's a subset of patients who get exposed to tozolizumab who unmask their Gilbert syndrome and end up with an elevated bilirubin. This is not due to liver disease. It's due to Gilbert syndrome. And you need to check a direct bilirubin 
And, and these people actually have the same uh, genotype. So let's go to the third question or third. Yeah. What do we got here, Jack? Oh, okay. It's nighttime. And in Ireland in particular, how many alcoholic drinks do you allow while on methotrexate? And um, one to two a week, one to two a month, none, no limit. Richard, in Ireland, there's zero way that you don't allow alcohol, right? Yeah, no, it's completely impractical. And even the one to two drinks a week is impractical yeah. here. So we, um, I allow people drink up to the recommended kind of 14 units a week. There's a nice study from Manchester showing that if you're up to that amount, it doesn't really have any increased effect on average um, on your liver function tests. Um, so we have most of our patients will be drinking that much and we actually rarely see problems because of it. Um, Grace, New York, you drink in New York, oh, I think. Yeah, New York is a, is a different town. So it depends on the person. You know, the person who tells me it's they do one drink a day, but I know it's a six pack a day. Um, I, I really sort of give very strong caution to. But I typically say a glass of wine with dinner is not going to hurt. Um, and on the day of methotrexate, if nausea is your thing, maybe you cut back to half a glass or none that night. Um, and I, I really haven't seen a bump in toxicity with that. And, and Joel? No, they tend to oh. resist. <laughs> Joel, what about you? Well, yeah, my opinion, this is not a one size fits all. You can't say universally, uniformly, blanket statement, one or two a week, 14 units a week. It makes no scientific sense. First of all, there are wide variations in human alcohol dehydrogenase. Second of all, the uh, five to eight intracellular enzymes that are blocked by methotrexate, which cause not only the therapeutic, gives the therapeutic value of the drug, but are associated with toxicity, vary all over the map. And there's no telling that human being in front of you what their folic pathway, folic acid pathway, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and alcohol dehydrogenase are. Now, it's a lot simpler to not worry about all those uh, complications, all that stuff. Uh, so what I would say, I start out with one drink a week. I go to one drink a night. But... I carefully monitor the patient because I cannot predict the biochemical and intracellular metabolism of the drug. So if you find when you're going from one drink a night to two drinks a night, that you're now getting transaminitis, that should tell you something. So you have to be diligent and vigilant uh, regarding the potential effects of alcohol. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, you can't, we don't know the effect of alcohol on anyone's liver process. And as mentioned, and we're going to talk more about this, you got to monitor the liver transaminases. I mean, it is irresponsible to say to someone, you can drink and not look at the transaminase levels. And if you have a patient whose transaminases are going up while they're consuming alcohol, you need to cut back on the alcohol consumption. And you got to monitor the blood. I mean, 30 years ago, I used to tell patients, no alcohol except a, a wake or a wedding, which was a problem in Boston. But, um, you know, I'm a lot more liberal now, but I follow the liver blood tests. 
And if the transaminases go up, they need to cut back on their alcohol um, because the alcohol effects on the liver are slightly different than that of methotrexate. And we want to avoid damaging an important organ. So, you know, we're a little more, we're more liberal, but we're, at least I am not more liberal with regard to monitoring. And we're going to talk about monitoring in a minute. So a couple of rules. If I could just add, you and I are familiar with the archives of dermatology study in Scandinavian psoriatics by NIFORS. I believe the year was 1973, long time ago. So they did liver biopsies and they allowed ad libitum access to alcohol. So a lot of liver biopsies, 26% incidence of cirrhosis of the liver. Now, are Scandinavian psoriatics, psoriatic arthritis, not RA, are they more prone? We know that perhaps Scandinavians at that time drink a lot. Uh, perhaps, you know, they're, they're brethren with the Irish. But giving ad libitum and looking the other way, I do not think the human biology has altered in the last that much in the last 50 years. So just be careful, monitor the LFTs. So one of the, one of the questions in the chat was this clarification of Gilbert's. This is only related to tozolizumab where in patients that have this unique genotype, when they're given uh, tozolizumab, it unmasks it. If you get an elevated bilirubin in a patient on methotrexate, that's a problem. Um, so bilirubin, you know, in our liver monitoring, it's really AST and ALT and serum albumin are the critical factors that we should be looking at. Uh, if you get an isolated bilirubin without those other being changed, you, you need to repeat the tests and look at it. So I, I don't, you know, with tozolizumab, the elevated bilirubin probably does not indicate liver disease. It probably indicates uh, Gilbert's and issues regarding indirect bilirubin. And then we had a question, and I hope this is the Art Weinstein, who actually did some of the early work on methotrexate in the 1970s, one of the first uh, open studies with methotrexate. The question regarding whole blood methotrexate levels to assess compliance and non-responders. The best test actually is methotrexate polyglutamate levels, not serum levels of methotrexate. The polyglutamates you know, and Joel has published on this, polyglutamate levels actually will tell you about whether patients are compliant. And that is, are you getting an insufficient level of polyglutamates three and four? And do you need a higher dose? And uh, that's a good way to assess non-compliance. And it's been suggested that if you're not at that level, a therapeutic uh, window of polyglutamates three and four, you need to increase the dose. Joel, you want to comment? Uh, no, I have nothing to add to what you've said. RBC methotrexate polyglutamates are indeed the way to go. Serum methotrexate with normal renal function is indetectable 24 hours after the dose. So it's silly to look at serum methotrexate. It's a waste of money. The only time I ever draw a serum methotrexate level is in patient who presents with pancytopenia and renal disease. I mean, to make sure the methotrexate is being cleared. So what's, what's the next, uh, we got another comment here, Jack. Okay, we're, we're going to Richard for this. Do you use methotrexate in RA patients with ILD? And it looks like 40 to 
of our colleagues around the world say yes, and about 35, 30% say no, or they get a pulmonary consultation. Um, Richard, what are your thoughts about methotrexate in patients with underlying lung disease? I'm relatively pleased with the response, but I thought it'd be worse. I thought uh, nobody would be using it, so I'm a little bit happy. Uh, for God's sake, don't ask pulmonary, because they'll just say no um, and not, not to use it. I freely use metatrexate in people with ILD. Like the concern here is metatrexate pneumonitis, which is very rare. The, the cardiovascular inflammation reduction trial incidence of 0.3%. We know RAILD is, is really common. It's a really nasty manifestation of RA. People die from it. We don't necessarily know how to treat it for sure, but my own opinion is that you want to hit these people with everything you can to get their rheumatoid disease process under control. And for me, metatrexate is a very important part of our armamentarium to treat rheumatoid disease. And we have a number of good studies now showing that people on metatrexate are less likely to get interstitial lung disease. If they do get it, it happens later. We even have one study showing that people who already have ILD and are treated with metatrexate seem to do better um, because they're on metatrexate. So I use it very freely. Um, I think everyone with ILD should be on metatrexate with one important exception, which is if their pulmonary reserve is too bad at the start to survive metatrexate pneumonitis. So that's people already on oxygen. Sometimes you say people with an arbitrary DLCO of less than 40%. You probably don't want to risk it in those people, but everyone else I use metatrexate in. Yeah, so Joel and I were on the guidelines committee, the recent guidelines for the ACR, um, and we had a lot of discussion about this. And I think universally we felt very similar to Richard that we shouldn't withhold the use of this drug just because of, an, because of ILD or another lung process. And just like Richard mentioned, I wouldn't use methotrexate in someone who had a severely compromised lung function because if they develop methotrexate pneumonitis in that process, it would be bad. But we, you know, Joel and I looked at this with Cella and Grant Cannon like 30 years ago, looking at risk factors for methotrexate lung, and it was insulin-dependent diabetics, and patients with underlying pleuropulmonary disease. Um, and I must say, I hardly ever see methotrexate lung now. Grace, wh what about in your practice? Richard, what yeah. do you do? You, you see it? My, I don't hardly ever see it. I mean, I, exactly. So, you know, going back 25 years ago, I saw a lot of RALD, but, you know, we had very sick patients sort of in the pre biologic era. So th that question came up a lot. Um, now, not so much because I, I just don't see um, as many rheumatoids who are walking in with untreated, undiagnosed with ILD. So yes, I do use it, but it's just numerically much fewer. Yeah. Joel, you want to comment? Yeah. Uh, methotrexate lung is a hypersensitivity reaction. It's eosinophils in the interstitium. It tends to peak at nine months. So you can use it cautiously in a patient with ILD, be careful. If they start presenting with a dry cough, uh, pleuritis, then that usually evolves over to maximum clinical problems over a period of three weeks. So it's like a lot of things in medicine, it's not written in stone, be very careful. The uh, publications that 
Michael referred to that we did with Chella Alarcon. We reviewed the world's literature and our own existing cases. I believe it was 1980. And uh, we found that pre-existing interstitial lung disease was indeed a risk factor. However, I very much respect Richard's experience. Uh, so I think this is one of the many areas of medicine that we have to keep an open mind and just be very careful, I would be. And I personally don't use it in a patient with ILD, but I can see where one would. So, so you know, as Richard mentioned in the methotrexate study in, 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 in metabolic syndrome and diabetes, uh, the CERT trial that came out of the Brigham, uh, lung disease was incredibly rare. In fact, in other large registry programs, it's less than 0.01%, even, and even that's high, relatively speaking. So it's a pretty uncommon event to see this. And, you know, my bias is that it's generally, as Joel mentioned, it's an early event. It's a hypersensitivity reaction. It's more likely if you have a patient who develops a process on methotrexate affecting the lung, it's more likely it's an infection including opportunistic organisms, which include pneumocystis. Um, so you need to consider that. So I do use the drug uh, in ILD. Um, and, you know, the key is that if you think they had methotrexate lung, don't re-challenge them. Because historically oh, speaking, absolutely. a third of those patients develop the process again. And we have too many other drugs um, that we can use uh, if someone has, has a pulmonary process. So one Michael, of the questions. Hey, uh, Richard mentioned the CERT study, which was, of course, not in rheumatoids, not in people with autoimmune disease. Uh, was in people with uh, CVD risk. So I don't know that we can take that to the bank, comparing normals without an autoimmune disease for the overall incidence and final prevalence. Uh, methotrexate lung. I don't think it's a good model. Yeah, but you know, Joel, in meta-analysis that have been done on looking at the lung, it's like really low. I mean, it's not what we saw 30 years ago where we'd see patients, you know, every couple months that we thought had yeah. methotrexate lung. It is very uncommon nowadays. I, I totally agree. I wish I, I wish I understood it. Yeah. So one of the questions came up is, um, and I'll ask you know, Grace and Richard and Joel, could you use methotrexate in a patient as hemochromatosis? Me? I yeah. wouldn't. Yeah, if I wouldn't they either. have another reason to have liver disease, I would not use methotrexate. Yeah. I'd be really leery of that. They've got too many other drugs now to treat their RA. One common question comes up is what about, and Grace, I'll ask you, what do you do in your patient who comes in with an elevated BMI that has NASH? Well, this is where I get um, hepatology and yeah. uh, nutrition involved from the very beginning, because it's really difficult for me to then assess what their true RA liver state is in terms of you know safety and, and toxicity. Um, but if I can avoid giving them a hepatotoxic agent, I do. Yeah, you know, I think we want to underline the transaminases have to be normal, and I'm usually this dogmatic, but I'll be in this case. The transaminases have to be normal, not above the upper limit of normal before you start somebody on methotrexate. So if you have somebody with NASH, 
who has normal liver transamination, you start them on the drug and then you monitor them and maybe their transaminases start to go up or maybe you're just uncomfortable because they have NASH. One thing you could do is you could get a fibro scan just to make sure there's not a lot of fibrosis. So I don't know if, if, if Joel or Richard want to comment upon that. No, I would reinforce what you said. Baseline abnormal LFTs above the upper limit of normal. Do not use methotrexate. I would so, repeat them. I would ask questions about alcohol or other hepatotoxins. And if you have several repeat normal values, then I would use it cautiously. Yeah. Richard, your thoughts? Yeah, NASH actually worries me more than hemochromatosis. Yeah. Hemochromatosis yeah. depends. Some people will be diagnosed before they have any complications, they'll be on regular phlebotomy. Yeah. They'll probably be okay. Um, but NASH, yeah, that would scare me a little bit. So one of the one of the comments in the chat was, what about using the flutamide with hemochromatosis? I would not avoid that too, because it's also a patotoxic. I mean, so I we got other options to treat their disease. Um isn't there, isn't there data that methotrexate may treat or prevent RAILD? Well, methotrexate has been used by our friends in the UK to treat ILD in non-rheumatoids. Um, I'm not aware of any clinical trials of methotrexate and RAILD. And I mean, Richard, maybe you do. I'm not aware of any. There's no um, randomized control trials. There's a, a study from Mexico um, Kind of an observational study, which better outcomes with metotrexate. Um, reasonably well done study, but it's one study. Um, so then another question in the chat about wh- what about significant macrocytosis, MCV greater than 105 in patients on methotrexate? What does it mean? Well, first it tells you they're taking the drug, but it tells me two things. And what do you want to rule out? Get a B12 level to make sure the patient hasn't developed unrelated B12 deficiency which can occur and get us get an RBC folate level. If you can't get that get a folate level to make sure that their folate stores are normal, because maybe they're not taking their folic acid and grace or Joel, do you do anything else? Uh, that's exactly what I do. Yeah. I don't stop the drug cause of it. Just make sure their folate stores are normal and their B12 is normal. We, we and, asked them about alcohol as well, because yeah, there you go. Alcohol, big, big one and uh, non-compliance with their folic acid. Um, and LFTs going up and down with NASH alone. Yeah, uh, Dr. Tester, that's possible, but if there's no methotrexate, it could be either or, and I'm not sure I know the difference. So what kind of, I know we've got a lot more questions here. NASH may at times be associated with normal enzymes, therefore not a useful screen. Should you consider ultrasound or fibro scan at risk patients? And I mentioned that actually. Um, I do, I do uh, uh, fibro scans in my patients who I'm worried about this issue. Um, and they don't always have elevated transaminases. And Joel, here we go. We're, we're throwing you the softball here. Um, how many transaminases do you tolerate and what level of transaminases do you tolerate? All right, Michael, you and I uh, collaborate on a study in which we did baseline and annual liver biopsies uh, through 13 years. And in the first six or eight years, we got monthly transaminases. Uh, And we analyzed the uh, liver biopsy specimens 
by light and EM. So what we found was that any persistent elevations of transaminases into the abnormal range were indeed associated with progression of hepatic histological deterioration. So this is not a threshold of 2x upper limit normal. It's not a threshold of 100 international units. It's persistent elevations into the abnormal range. It's worth stating that in that study, our patients had baseline transaminase values of 17 IEU. And after 18 months of methotrexate, it had doubled to 35 IU, still within the normal range. But it just shows that using methotrexate, your transaminases, if you really do follow them carefully, will double from the low normal range to the higher normal range. So I see these studies, and I think we're going to discuss this, that accept multiples of upper limit and normal as their starting point to become concerned. You know, it's science. Show me the data that refute what we show with actual hepatic tissue. If there are data that refute it, we need to respect it. But if it's your gut instinct, that shouldn't be good enough for us. So let's, let's go to this mechanism, how the what the drug does, and then we're going to come back to this monitoring question. So methotrexate is what kind of drug? And what do we got listed here? We've got, uh, uh, so this is not an A, B, C, or D. Anti-metabolite, 60-some percent. Immunosuppressive, 18%. Anti-proliferative, 7%. Anti-inflammatory, I don't know, 7%. Cytotoxic, 6%. It's actually all of the above. This drug is a dirty molecule. I mean, it works across the board and it really, some of it is dose dependent. And even though in our original trials, we weren't able to show through gross immunosuppressive assays that it was immunosuppressive. We know it's immunosuppressive because we get opportunistic infections and we do have a higher rate of infection compared to other, you know, like drugs like hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's an anti-inflammatory and it's an anti-metabolite. And Bruce Cronstein is, you know, demonstrated its effect upon adenosine as an anti-inflammatory. So, you know, it's got multiple mechanisms. I don't know whether anybody on the panel feels differently. Okay, so, so Jack, you want to bring up this paper? We're going to barbecue in a minute. So, so this is uh, a paper from the UK. Right, I think it's from the UK. Uh, next slide. I oh, believe. next slide. Yeah. Do you want to we're talk going... about frequency of monitoring? Uh, well, we're going to get to that with this paper. Okay. Yeah, here we go. So, this is a, a retrospective study published in uh, uh, the B in uh, BMJ Open, I think, RMD Open or something, um, and. It's looking at electronic health records, and the authors tried to develop a prognostic model to risk stratify decisions on frequency of monitoring a blood test during long-term methotrexate administration. And um, they developed this algorithm, which suggests that if you, uh, you, could, you could actually not monitor on a regular basis 
over time who weren't at risk for developing liver disease. And Joe, you want to comment and then I'll give you my, my view on it. Yeah, my sense is that we're in agreement. I think uh, so. They used 100 IUs of transaminases as their threshold to define an abnormal uh, transaminase. Given what I've already said, to do 2.4, whatever it is, 2.4x 2, 2 upper limit of normal as the point where you start defining potential toxicity uh, is crazy, in my opinion. Uh, let's face it, if they had liver tests that are done frequently with hepatic histology, I could respect the way they went about this redefining a threshold of 100 IUs, but they didn't. They didn't have any of that. So and there was a, a curious statement uh, that the predictors they used were based upon the clinical expectation and knowledge of the literature of the experts who were co-authors. So one must presume that there was a certain amount of bias we're not, I'm not clear if they really consume the published literature that we had, we had uh, published in back in 1994 and the 90s. So as I said earlier, methotrexate is a hepatotoxin. To monitor Q6 months uh, is going back to what the dermatologists did. And uh, when they used methotrexate, they looked the other way and it didn't come back to bite them until they had a 26% incidence of cirrhosis. This is not the 16th century. This was in the 70s. So I'm open to new methodologies, new evidence that's done right. But saying it's our opinion with a threshold of 100 IUs and everything is okay, and if it's okay in the first period, then you don't need to monitor only every six months. Uh, that's not serving uh, our patients well. Yeah, so I'll make, I'll make a couple comments, which are even a little more critical than Joel's, which, number one, about in our earlier trials, and Joel's, Joel's trial, about 25% of patients bumped up their transaminases above the upper limit of normal in the first six months of treatment. And we had this is consistent. We look at all the clinical trials and over time, the liver compensates for the drug and then you don't see the, ele the transaminase elevations. And those patients who had elevated transaminases in the first six months did not go on and develop what we're concerned about, which is hepatic fibrosis and or cirrhosis. So the first six months of treatment does not predict those patients who may or may not have a problem down the road. And the problem isn't a year down the road. The problem can be five years down the road, 10 years down the road. We have patients now on the drug for 30 years and it's chronic dosing is a risk factor for methotrexate liver disease, which is a fibrotic lesion and, and repetitive elevations in transaminases identify those patients who develop serious liver disease. Now, how can I be do so dogmatic? Well, Joel published on this you know, decades ago, and we did this case control study where we asked members of the ACR 
to identify patients who develop serious liver disease in their practice. And we, I don't know, 20, 30 patients, but 80% of the rheumatologists respond to the survey, which by itself was reportable. And we identified a number of patients who by definition either had cirrhosis on liver biopsy or clinical evidence of hepatic decompensation defined as ascites, uh, uh, portal hypertension, esophageal varices. And I think we would all agree that's serious liver disease. And 100% of those patients had serial elevations in transaminases above, just above the upper limit of normal, not twofold, not threefold, not fourfold. And they were the patients a year prior to the event that went on to develop serious liver disease. I was very uncomfortable when the ACR guidelines committee without any data stretched the interval out from every two months to every three months. If you keep stretching out this interval, you will miss these elevations in transaminases. And when you do that, you're placing your patient at risk for development of progressive fibrosis and or cirrhosis. And uh, if I had reviewed this paper, I would have rejected it actually, because I think this I, paper- I would have too. This Michael, paper, I strongly agree you know. uh, with what you say. When, because we did monthly transaminase measures, we found that if you go to Q three months, you actually miss two thirds of the elevations. Uh, so out of sight, out of mind, no big deal. And I'm not advocating for monthly monitoring long-term, but I do feel, and this is in the, in the area of, it's gray, that monthly monitoring for three months going to Q2 months, and then if everything's okay, Q3 months is a reasonable approach that's been adopted formally by the ACR. But this is class C evidence. It's not based upon observational data. I'm not advocating Q monthly, but they go to Q six months and to find the threshold is 100 units, uh, that's asking for trouble. So in the paper, in the introduction, they say, however, no evidence base supports the use of three monthly blood tests in the early detection of liver, blood, or kidney toxicity during long-term methotrexate therapy. And they don't reference it because they didn't read a, they didn't read the papers. I mean, you know, I think this is a this if this this could place our patients at harm. And I'm not buying the argument about the increased cost because it's a lot cheaper to get a blood test than a liver transplant. I mean, this is crazy. Um, so please monitor the blood, you know, and it methotrexate liver disease in RA is really uncommon now. And I think partly because we're choosing better patients to get the drug and we're monitoring the blood. You know, there's only been, I'm only aware of one reported case of a patient who had completely normal transaminases over time that actually developed liver toxicity on biopsy. And that was a diabetic being followed at the VA in which they were doing biopsy at every two years. Um, there's one in the world's literature, yep. normal FTs. Jack Cush in the chat, ask the question, what about a patient who's had normal LFTs in the first year? Well, if you're gonna stop methotrexate, you can stop monitoring and you can back off. But the cumulative effects of methotrexate are, are it's a, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, they're cumulative. So to stop monitoring as the patient gets older, 
maybe the BMI increases, maybe they're exposed to other hepatotoxins because they've been normal in the first 12 months just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I would continue to monitor at regular intervals. Now, hmm. if you've been normal for a year and you've backed off gradually to Q3 months, continue with that interval. But to go to Q6 months without any evidence base is asking for trouble, not only for your patient, but and I had to bring this in, but I've been asked to testify uh, against plaintiffs who develop end-stage liver disease, who have not been monitored appropriately. And I never testify for the plaintiff, but I see these cases and they're out there. So, you know, in, in the study that we did, which is, you know, no one has refuted that trial, that study, these patients, that developed serious liver disease developed it after several years of methotrexate, four, five, six years. It would be exceedingly rare to get serious liver disease in the first one to two years of methotrexate therapy. It's unless they had underlying liver disease that wasn't picked up. It's, you know, those patients on long-term therapies at the risk. So we need to monitor the patient to protect them. And we really do. So, um, so we got a couple minutes left. Please um, put your questions. I'm going to see what we got in the question and answer section here. See if there's anything else we haven't talked about here. And Mike, I'll just add one additional Please, thing. Please, yep. As people become very comfortable on drug, they may become a little bit more lax, right? So instead yep. of one drink a week, it's three drinks a week. And so if I'm not monitoring, I'm not gonna pick up the change in your behavior that you're no longer gonna report um, that leads to that adverse outcome. So I think we have to uh, remember that people just get comfy and they get lax. And so we yeah. can't afford to do that. Yeah, so that's what happens when you go to every four months, they're getting it every six months. I mean, so, I mean, I, I and I don't buy the cost issue, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, we're I not... mean, they, they use phrases like convenience for the patient, right. cost, uh, the poor patient has to be stuck. They're going to be stuck a lot more when they get end-stage liver disease. Look, the sky isn't falling. And for the most part, we're doing okay with monitoring. But please do not back off indefinitely and define new thresholds without evidence. So I'm going to ask the group because I don't have an answer to this. And I like the, what the audience, what the audience is doing. We're now moving back into vaccine season again, vaccination again. So we got people, you know, that are going to be getting the new COVID, the enhanced COVID vaccine and flu shots. What are you telling them to do with their methotrexate? Grace, what are you telling your patients? Exactly what I told them last year and the year before. Uh, you know, hold that dose um, and get, at least get the, the shot and then, you know, restart it uh, one to two weeks later. Yep. Richard in Ireland, what, what are people doing? Yeah. I mean, if, if they're well-controlled um, disease activity, we tell them to hold one dose after the vaccine. Yeah. Joel, what do you think? Yeah. One or two doses. Yeah. Uh, originally it was two. Yeah. Recent publication indicated holding for a single dose was probably okay. Of course, that's only we all, the only data we have is with regard to the flu shot, not with the COVID vaccine. Um, but I would agree. I tell them to hold it for you know a week after their methotrexate, and uh, 
you know, it, when you held it for a month, at least the Korean study showed the patients flared. And that was certainly my experience uh, yep. when we did our first trial with methotrexate. A month after holding the drug in the placebo washout, they flared. And at two weeks, surprisingly enough, when I held the drug for two weeks, which I never thought this would happen following the COVID vaccine, we had a lot of patients flare. So uh, I'm holding it for generally a week after after the vaccines now. You know, it's very interesting, Michael. Lyndon Dalrymple described the uh, half-life of, of intracellular methotrexate polyglutamates after discontinuing. And it takes um, a full month, 26 days, for uh, the methotrexate intracellular polyglutamate levels to go to what should be subtherapeutic. But like everything else in medicine, people differ. I would personally be surprised if there was a lot of toxicity, a lot of flares after only two weeks, given how long it takes for the intracellular methotrexate polyglutamates to deplete. But you'll be safer one week. You'll probably be safer with most patients based on those intracellular studies uh, if you hold it two weeks. So one of the questions came up, what about, what about monitoring GGT? I don't monitor the GGT in our patients. It's really but sensitive. Too sensitive. Don't, don't even yep. And, uh, um, you know, AST, ALT, albumin, and you want a creatinine to make sure they're not developing unrelated renal insufficiency because that's the really significant concern. So if there are not any other questions or comments, from the panel. Well, first, I want to thank the audience for great questions. And obviously, I want to thank my three panelists. We've had great experience on the use of the molecule. And as I said, when Jack invites us back in a decade from now, we'll still be talking about methotrexate. Um, I want to remind everybody that next week, uh, uh, we're back on target for another one of these sessions. And it's going to be about escalation and de-escalation of the DMARDs and biologics. So, Thanks so much. And Jack, thank you for hosting this. Much appreciated. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Mike.